1: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
0: Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are Cameron Luthie. He's a a senior analyst at Bloomberg Government, and Brian Friel, who is a co-founder of BD Squared. And guys, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks, Roger. Nice to yeah. be here. This should be a fun discussion. We're going to be talking about uh, fourth quarter spend, what the prospects are of that, how some of these uh, major contract vehicles are faring, um, what we can expect to see as we continue into the last quarter of uh, the federal fiscal year. But first, what I'd like to focus on is there's been you know some series of sort of major events in interagency or government-wide contracting, particularly focusing on small business. And you know you had the Alliance Two Small Business procurement canceled after four or five years of uh, of the procurement and the planning process and all that sort of thing. And after a series of bid protests, um, you had A Stars Two, an increase in the contract ceiling, GSA, and the customers successfully bumped up on the ceiling of um, $15 billion, and they raised that ceiling to $7 billion correspondingly. Um, but at the same time, they've reduced the period of performance from four years to two years, so it's basically to 2022 in conjunction with that $7 billion increase. And then lastly, they've issued the 8A-STARS-3 solicitation and. So I ask you Brian first just your thoughts like so with the cancellation of the Alliant contract you know w- w- what's next for that that's a major program it was an 8 billion dollar contract vehicle that puts a pretty big hole in the market what where, what happens next
1: so it's important to keep in mind that the there's been this this gap has been in existence for you know basically 2 years now yes. where a lot, the ordering period for the original Alliance Small Business ended, and there's just been no follow-on vehicle. And so, work that's been that was originally issued on that contract that um, has come up for rebid in the time since uh, the ordering period for Alliance Small Business ended has already been shifting over to other vehicles like the schedules or CIOSP three or Stars or Vets. And so we'll just you know continue to see that happen. And what I think what it means is when whenever GSA does eventually get an alliance to small business program in some form going again, the market will have largely moved on. So, you know, buyers will have been making acquisition plans for payments that are going out into 22, 23. So it will take a significant amount of time even – when follow-on vehicles are ultimately awarded for work to transition back to that program.
0: Yeah, I I think one of the things I've heard across, you know, government and industry is, you know, once the customer leaves in this kind of program, it's very hard to get them back. Um, Is that your experience, guys?
2: Yeah, I I think, and you've seen this in other instances where um, the new vehicle takes longer than what uh, people might have expected to gain traction and, uh, to issue significant, uh, numbers and, uh, of task orders and, uh, mm-hmm. significant, of significant value.
0: Yeah. So wh- what do you think? Wh- wh- where do you think GSA goes next with this vehicle? Did they try to do another aligned small business too? Do they, you know, it's not clear from their announcement. They talked about solicitations and creating pools and different opportunities for all the various socioeconomic categories, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't clear what their plan was.
2: Chris Corneli on our team did a sort of a postmortem the other day, and he thinks that there are clearly some serious internal review that's been going on within GSA. And um, that they'll, for the short term, they'll keep trying to make existing vehicles more attractive for federal contractors. And remember, GSA has other vehicles that they can use, including what used to be the IT-70 schedule. So it's not like GSA is out of the game entirely. Um, But I think long-term, it's going to be a challenge. And I think, as Roger, you pointed out at the outset, I think a lot of the contracting community is pretty upset uh, because they invested time and resources to position themselves to be on Alliant2 small business. So at some point, I think GSA intends to sit down with the contracting community and get input. At that time, they're going to take their lumps.
0: Yeah, Brian, you have any thoughts? I, I think there's a, a
1: clear path forward for GSA here to put out a solicitation, probably after they get done with stars, which is which the proposals for that will go in in August. That creates a program that has set aside for woman-owned small businesses, for hub zones, for STVOSBs and star, and 8a companies. They already have two GWACs one for uh, SDVOSB, Service Disabled Random Small Businesses on VETS 2, and one for 8As. But they can create a much more robust program that covers all of the different socioeconomic categories. They can use a scorecard methodology and use the symphony system that they use to um, expedite the on-ramping of several hundred companies onto the OASIS Small Business Program uh, over the last um, 12 months. So there's a pretty easy path forward. They just need to, to go with it. And the main problem they had on the first, the aligned 2 small business program was they didn't follow contracting 101 and follow the evaluation criteria that right. they had laid out in the RFP. That's all it was. Very simple. Yeah. All they had to do is put out a procurement and stick to the evaluation criteria, which is what they did on Oasis. And, and on Oasis, they're rapidly getting, you know, several hundred additional companies rolled onto this Oasis small business program in a matter of you know 12 months or so
0: so along those lines when cameron mentioned you know this is something that they may focus on after they work through 88 stars three this procurement with proposals due in august i assume that will get extended but we're talking about probably award you know if they did everything right in the first quarter of next calendar year perhaps i don't know what their schedule is but unless they immediately start moving forward with some sort of solicitation acquisition planning for a new Alliant2 small business, let's say, it's going to be a while before we even see anything on the ground for people to comment on or to take a look at. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think for companies and for buyers, you have to assume that there's not going to be Alliant2 small business in any form through all of fiscal 21 and probably all of fiscal 22. So you're really looking at a fiscal 2023 start for any follow
0: on vehicle. Right, and you mentioned where people are going. Is there anybody who's a big winner out of the um, cancellation alliance solicitation?
1: I think it's the, for for one it's the companies that are on CIOSP three small business. Uh, That's a logical place for this work uh, to go, especially for like cost plus work, which can't go onto to the uh, schedules. There's also on the, the, a lot of this work is at DOD. So I wouldn't be surprised to see winners on the Army ITES 3S vehicle, which hasn't been tremendously used, but this could kind of be a boon to them. And then for um, Air Force work, the Small Business Enterprise Application Solutions vehicle, SPs, and then at the Navy, the, the C4 vehicle. So existing vehicles and the companies that are on those vehicles uh, should be out there marketing those vehicles and their services to the agencies that had previously been using Alliant uh, Small Business.
0: You know, it seems to me one of the pro- one of the issues here, uh, Brian just went through and named a bunch of different contract vehicles that are run by specific agencies. Is this a hit, like the elimination, cancellation of it? Alliant? Uh, small business is it something where it just sort of reinforces the idea? It's important to have your own contract vehicle, you know. Despite you know, and does it run counter the way we're trying to go? I think pe- most people think there's way too many contracts right now already. You know, this doesn't help things from that perspective. Is well, you I'd like to get your thoughts on that, guys.
2: Well, we know that the goal is to consolidate the number of multiple work contracts and schedules, and that's that's stated. The 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 question is, if some of the work does migrate in the direction that Brian just illustrated to agency-specific vehicles, there's also work that's going to has already moved to GSA schedules, uh, and so it's not a clear picture. It's a little muddy, but you know that consolidation is a long-term project.
0: Right. I think we haven't had. I mean, for for all the discussion about contract proliferation and duplication, and I know that's a big issue with industry there. It seems like we have more now than we did even two or three years ago. Is that my sense? Is that the sense of it or not? Brian?
1: I think we were were seeing a a trend uh, downward in the terms of the number of duplicative contracts. For example, you had the Homeland Security Department decide not to do Eagle 3 for its IT services and instead move all of that work to the, the stars, the CSP threes, the vets, and would have been the, the Alliance, uh, IRS ended its tips, uh, program, moving all of that, um, IT services work over to the, to the best in class vehicles. So I think, I think there's still a desire by the agencies to avoid having to go through what GSA is going through in terms of a right. three to four year procurement cycle for a, um, but but they they all struggle too, right? The Air Force took three years to get twenty awardees onto its um, SB's IT services contract. Uh, FBI just tried to do a, a blanket purchase, a multiple or blanket purchase agreement uh, for IT services called ITEX that went belly up. Uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has been in source selection for more than a year on its IT services contract. Nobody, the agencies themselves, and obviously. GSA and, and NITAC, which, which has spent four years in source selection on the on-ramp for CISP3 small business, no one's really figured it out, how to quickly get these things in place. And partly it's because of industry, um, industry protests, right? The, you know Any small mistake that an agency makes in the process uh, will be attacked in a protest and cause the, the procurement to get delayed even further.
0: Right. Well, you know, as we're we're up on the break, guys. When we come back, I looked at a. We'll continue our discussion of the sort of you could call it a shakeout a little bit in terms of interagency contracts and what's going on there. Um, We'll continue that discussion, and then we can turn to some of the bigger picture and like where the money is, and you know, just the pattern of uh, uh, obligations over the fourth quarter of the government's fiscal year. My guest today. Our Brian Friel, he's a co-founder of BD Squared. And Cameron Luthie, is senior analyst at Bloomberg Government. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Cameron Luthie, he's senior uh, analyst at Bloomberg Government. Uh, Brian Friel is co-founder of BD Squared. We're talking about the fourth quarter fiscal year spend, and also, frankly, the shape of the market and some market shakeups, in particular, in interagency contracting and uh, small business opportunities in the information technology arena. So, Cameron, I mean, I, I know you've, you guys been looking at CISP 3 slash 4, that procurement. You know, just what's the latest there? What's going on?
2: Well, the NIH Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, (NITAC) has three best in class contracts and that, that's CIOSP3 small business, CIOSP3 uh, and CIO CS, commodity solutions. Um, these are IT contracts and they're humongous. CIOSP3, the replacement follow on contract CIOSP4 uh, in the spring uh, was uh, adjusted for this new vehicle uh, for which the competition is coming up to $40 billion um, over, uh, that is a Base period and then follow on that uh, could extend it out for 15 years. So this is a big, big deal. Um, we're talking IT services for healthcare, CIO support, digital media, out, IT operation and maintenance. So the kinds of things you can do to keep existing legacy systems running, as well as cybersecurity, digital government, and and cloud services. So the scope is significant in breadth and the term. The period of performance is significant in length.
0: Right. I mean that that contract is Brian has grown over the years, and that program has been pretty successful. At the end of the day, and I, is DoD the biggest user as well? HHS is the biggest, followed by DoD. Okay.
1: And um, and you know, given kind of what's going on with some of those GSA vehicles, I think we'll see even more DoD usage of CIOSP three going into CIOSP four. The thing that that we're really focused on right now on that is the draft scorecard for CISP4 that was released a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, so the, this is the first time NITAC is using a scorecard methodology for its procurement, and the goal is to speed up the process uh, by uh, allowing companies to self-score themselves against uh, provided evaluation criteria, and then all the government has to do is kind of validate against those scores. I think the Nitec is going to get a lot of industry feedback on that, on the way it's currently structured, because it's set up a kind of a three-step, first go, no-go, then scorecard evaluation, and then an adjectival analysis of everybody's proposals, which at the end of the day, if they stick with that, will extend this source selection out just as long as the alliance 2 small business source selection has gone. So I think they're going to really have to look at that a little bit closer and figure out... How do they make sure that they don't create an evaluation process that
0: gets bogged down, you know, for for years on end? Yeah, I guess Brian, you you've worked on a lot of these different type of procurements and the scorecard approach. But it seems to me the adjectival approach, combined with the scorecard approach, kind of undercuts the whole concept of doing a scorecard, doesn't it? And if you're talking about where risk comes with regard to bid protest and that sort of thing, I mean, I think people figure out where the weaknesses are in the evaluation approach, where their uncertainty is, issues that can be raised over time. And you know, that scorecard was the idea behind it was to try to put the onus on the companies, right? So you score yourself. So hey, that's your score. We and the government was just validating that, right? As opposed to doing its own assessment right so it's a little bit easier now it's designed i think in part to address the bit protest process but once you start putting adjectival ratings and type evaluations back in there i think that undermines it doesn't it yeah and
1: it it just takes longer right because and and you and you end up having to do the same thing twice so first you assess whether they meet the technical criteria based on the scorecard, and then you're going back and doing a second evaluation of those technical criteria against the adjectival ratings. Air Force, uh, their small business enterprise application solutions contract, used that approach of a scorecard and then uh, a trade-off evaluation. They only got 200-some proposals, uh, got, and it took them three more than three years to get through source selection. You can expect 800 to 1,000 proposals for CIOSP. The thing is, there's no need to do it twice, right? You right, right. evaluation against the score criteria and evaluate whether or not they meet the technical standards and then you're done. You don't have to do it again using an adjectival analysis. Right.
0: Cameron.
2: I, I would just add, the reason I think that this is so important is because tentatively, NITAC's anticipating about uh, 75 to 125 unrestricted awards and 200 to 300 small business awards. And as Brian just pointed out, the number of companies that are going to bid on these slots is is going to be much greater than the number of slots. So that means that the valuation criteria is really important. It's also important in the context of what we talked about in the earlier segment, uh, the, the demise of Alliant2 small business. So companies are going to want to be on this vehicle. And if they don't get on, they're already under stress because of having to move to different vehicles and if they're not on those vehicles or there's not a convenient on-ramp then they have they've been put in a position of having to team to get work so this is a big deal
0: yeah this yeah this one like it's the next thing right for small businesses and in the wake of the cancellation of alliance small business you know like this is the ball game this is the, the trains leaving the station here right kind of thing And Brian, I did want to ask you another question. I got two more questions on this, then I want to shift to, um, you know, the overall, why the fourth quarter is so important and get some of your thoughts to But Brian, can you address the impact of, you know, STARS 2 increasing the ceiling by $7 billion, but at the same time, reducing the period of performance on the contract It giveth and taketh away at the same time in a certain sense? What's the practical, I guess, impact from that?
1: Yeah, so basically the rule now is any task orders that get awarded from here on out on STARS can only go out till uh, June 2022, right? So we've got basically a two-year period of performance limitation on task orders. So if you have a requirement that you wanted to issue as a base plus four option years, then you're not going to be able to do that on STARS, or you'll just have to do it as a, as a short-term thing. The rationale there to me makes sense in that most of the companies that are on 8A STARS 2 are no longer... Uh, 8A. So they're kind of on this glide path where they can still use their 8A status on that vehicle. But as soon as the vehicle turns off, they're no longer 8A. So by limiting the the period of performance on any task orders that get awarded now, it means that that work will transition more quickly onto 8A Stars 3 when that gets awarded. And that vehicle will be full of companies that are actively in the 8A program. So I think it makes sense from that perspective. um, But it does mean that buyers that want to have a longer period of performance are gonna not put that work on the Stars 2 vehicle. Cameron?
2: Oh, I I was just gonna add that as sort of, in part, a compensation for the anticipated uh, approach to the ceiling on Stars 2. They did increase that ceiling from 15 to 22 billion. So that is another way that they're trying to bridge the gap between the end of Stars 2 and the beginning of Stars 3.
0: Right, well, where do 8A companies go? I mean, I guess it's individual procurements by agencies. Um, there's not another contract vehicle there, right? That's out there for people to really look at, Brian. Well,
1: yeah, we've seen work go over to uh, Schedule 70 and yeah. still be completed as an 8A set aside. CSB 3 as small business has an 8A uh, track, and so we've seen work that would have gone on to stars go there. And then, yeah, agencies can just do direct, you know, orders, uh, you know, direct. Sort of standalone contracts up to $4 million sole sourced to 8A companies, just not on the vehicle. I think we're, we're tending to see most of the work go either to the schedules or to CSP3 if it's not going to go to STARS. We've also seen some work, some sources to offer the work that's on STARS go out on the new Oasis small business 8A subpool. So there are some other places, uh, but if any incumbent that is still 8A, wants to keep the work, they can always, you know, go the route of a standalone sole source contract.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, well, you know what, we're up on the break guys. So when we come back, I have one question about the schedules program in the context of all this. And then I, I want to, you know, look at you know, the bigger picture and just talk about what's going to happen in the fourth quarter and what you guys see. Uh, From an obligations perspective. So we'll do that when we come back for the next segment. My guests today are Brian Friel, who's co founder of BD Squared, and Cameron Luthy, who's senior analyst at Bloomberg Government. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Cameron Luthy, he's a senior analyst at Bloomberg Government, and Brian Friel, a co-founder of BD Squared. We're talking about the federal market. You know, guys, I think you know, we've talked a lot about contract vehicles and that sort of thing. So I have one sort of final topic area on that or question, you know, and then I want to turn to, you know, so, you know, the fourth quarter spend and what, what things look like there. Um, and that's really just in the looking at the context of things and how Challenging, I guess, it's become to award one of these major IDIQs where you're essentially creating a a gatekeeper and, you know, some people aren't going to get on the vehicle. And, you know, we've seen the proliferation of protests around those because there are market shaping events and potentially business survival events for companies. In the contrast to that, I mentioned it at sort of the end of the last segment, the schedules program. $5.5 $5.5 billion annually in IT spend to small businesses. It has continuous open seasons. So you don't get in that argument about whether you're part of the marketplace or not. You can get into the marketplace and it's incumbent on you to do it and you're not being directly compared to others. You know, is that, are we going to end up moving in that direction more? I mean, is it harder and harder to award these things? Um, could you see the schedules as the, alternative for customer agencies and small businesses yeah
1: i i think it, it already kind of serves this this role as kind of a backup vehicle so when when things kind of go wrong with some of these other contracts then you you'll see the work the the, the buyers say okay well i guess we'll we'll just use the schedules then and um part of the challenge is from a policy perspective the, the schedules have not been designated at the top tier of the best in class right startup. Yep. so then the question from a policy perspective becomes if the schedules could be, you know, should be seen as, as the way to go. um, Maybe you need to change the criteria that determines what's the top tier of the best in class. But conversely, maybe GSA really needs to look at some of the the strictures around the GSA schedules and why, why they are not seen as a first choice, why they're seen as the backup choice so often. Um, I mean, an obvious thing, right, that we've talked about in the past is that you can't do cost reimbursable uh, work on the, on the contract. Um, there's just also, I think a perception that it's an inflexible vehicle and that you're going to run into, to roadblocks, um, uh, in being able to, to put work on the, on the contract, particularly if it's kind of complex work that crosses, um, uh, crosses areas that maybe some of the consolidation here of the schedules will help address. Yeah. Um, but I think you've, you've, you've got a perception in the buyer's market across the government that the schedules are difficult to use or they don't, people don't want to pay the fees. And so GSA would have to come up with some way to overcome those perceptions or actually change some of the structures of the, of
0: the schedules in order to make that make buyers want to use it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one of the, if it's the backup plan, it, People know it works, so they've always got it in their back pocket. That's actually something to be said for it in terms of a positive perspective. And I still say, you know, to the extent, you know, the the dollar volume going through it, it you know, it's, you know, equals or exceeds GSAs, other small business GWACs, um, you know, I think there is a vote of confidence there. But, um, but to your point, I think consolidation could have a great deal of impact in trying to provide for solutions approached. I think that's part of the big intent. Uh, but Cameron, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Um, just that I think GSA, in terms of their uh, overall portfolio of vehicles, I think they are looking at in the in the wake of the termination of the Alliant Two Small Business Procurement. I think they are looking at the portfolio writ large and trying to think about how to make the existing vehicles more attractive. So uh, there is some sensitivity there on the part of the agency.
0: Yeah. Well, um, now, guys, I I do want to turn to um, sort of the bigger picture in a certain sense. And, Cameron, I'm just going to ask you, so why why is the fourth quarter so important? And why do we always want to talk about the fourth quarter uh, spend um, in in federal government and in the federal market?
2: Well, I think, Roger, that it's actually appropriate to combine the two subjects that we've talked about so far in that the contract vehicle's that we've been discussing are pivotal uh, in the fourth quarter. The government wants to put money on contract as quickly as possible, and these large multiple award contract vehicles are a good way for them to do that because they've already got a pool of pre-qualified sellers, if you will. In terms of numbers, of course, I think all of your listeners know that about a third of federal obligations are uh, incurred during Q4. And that's been relatively steady. There's been some ups and downs, and we have real-world events such as, oh, golly, the government shutdown or changes in the political dynamic, which can shift the ratios from one quarter to the next. For example, in the first couple of years of of the current administration, we know that civilian agencies held back obligating funds as they waited for Congress and the White House to negotiate how much money was going to be made available for civilian agencies in the context of big cuts to those civilian agencies in the president's budget. And those budget battles lasted months and months. And of course, we know we have long CRs and so on. So yeah, there's fluctuation. But generally, it's about a third of all contract obligations occurring in fourth quarter. And the multiple award contracts are a big part of the action. Um, that's sort of the the setting the stage,
0: right? Brian, is that when you when you're advising clients and talking to them about where things are going, it's like, what you know, is is one of your first questions? What contract vehicles do you have?
1: Yeah, definitely, because that determines in a lot of cases, are you going to be able to be a prime, or are you going to have to sub under someone else? And then also from the perspective of six months to a year out from the expected procurement, being able to try and shape it. At this point, we're, you know, we're at the start of the fourth quarter The you know, shaping's pretty much done. Now it's time to bid. And so where it goes, it goes. And then you have to, you know, uh, you know respond accordingly. So you know, a lot of what's happening right now is particularly where the acquisition strategy was, you know, the, the agency was in flux on where the work was going to go. You have companies kind of over under kind of uh, hypothetically until the work hits and then they can go in and.
0: And uh, prepare their bid as soon as it hits on whichever vehicle the agency ultimately picks. Right. right. So, and Cameron. So the you know I know some agencies are more are, are I guess busier than others in the fourth quarter, or they're spending more money. Can you talk a little bit about who are, who are the, the agencies? I mean, I think we all know one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But just and also be interesting your thoughts on the tempo. I mean, I think you've did done taken a look at the number of task orders and stuff per month and how it all works. That's interesting stuff and what actually is the busiest month. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, sure. So among the civilian agencies, leaving aside the, the 300-pound gorilla uh, of DOD, among the civilian agencies, VA is a big spender in Q4. Other big spenders include Homeland Security, NASA, the State Department, AID, uh, that have a lot of contract activity in Q4. Conversely, on the other hand, um, there's agencies like um, DOE, which most of the money goes to those big GOCO lab contracts, and they obligate those at the beginning of the year. A couple of other agencies that people might not be aware of that are highly dependent on Q4 are HUD and Interior, where they're, by our estimates, HUD's got about 1.3 billion to obligate in Q4 out of its 1.7 billion expected total, uh, and Interior about 1.6 billion out of its 3.6 billion dollar total for the year, as as we estimated.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. That's they've got a lot of work to do, then, don't they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about DHS? I mean, I th- I mean, I heard earlier from people at DHS that they were actually ahead in terms of their obligations for the year? So that, that like it was in the context of COVID-19 and operations and where they were and they said they were still able to execute. Um, do you have any sense on where they are?
2: Yeah, um, I think that that's right. I think they're a little ahead, but there are all these real world anomalies that uh, make it hard to forecast how we're gonna come out exactly. And one of those is of course, all of the, the detention activities at the border, um, for DHS, uh, where they they're actually talking about furloughing ICE personnel because they're running out of money, um, and and then you know the COVID virus response is also causing a real wrinkle in how we get to September 30.
0: Right. So, well, and and I'd like to pick up on that when we come back because we're at the break already. Well, we can start right there with what with the impact of COVID 19 on you know the, the spend and the tempo and that sort of thing. And don't forget, I wanna to talk too about just, it's interesting that the task order rate per month in the last quarter, July, August versus September. Um, my guests today are Brian Friel, he's co-founder of BD Squared and Cameron Luthie, he's senior analyst at Bloomberg Government. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers, whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrummancom performance. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My get, I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are uh, Brian Friel. He's co-founder of BD Squared and Cameron Luthie, a senior analyst at Bloomberg Government. And guys, um, you know, I guess, you know, first, Cameron, just to you a little bit about, you know, one of the things that I found interesting and in looking at some of you guys' work is, you know, the tempo with regard to, you know, task orders and when you really need to be, everybody thinks about, Yeah, which is somewhat true. You know, it's, you know, September 29th for, you know, maybe 48 hours or something, right? Or it's September 30th for 48 hours sometimes. Funny how that works. But really, I mean, you need to be on your game well before that. Um, Cameron?
2: Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here, Roger, is the difference between when the RFQs come out on the uh, multiple award contracts, and when the dollars are actually obligated when they when that task order contract is signed. And that's that lag effect is really important. And some agencies of course have rules about how much they have to obligate in the first three quarters versus the fourth quarter, and how much they have to obligate, you know, in fourth quarter in July and August versus September. But August is a very busy month for the busiest month for request for quotes uh in, in a lot in a lot of ways of, of measuring and uh that's compared to the biggest month for actual obligations which is September. So you have to sort of count back about 40 days or so from the point of obligation. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then isn't there you know some of these different acquisitions support organizations, they have cutoff dates, right? For that's right. get their money to them so they can issue the RFQ. Is that
2: Those things are
0: still in place, right? People have to be aware of those.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, as Brian made the point earlier, really have to go back to the beginning of the year and that review of your contract vehicles, the, you know, the conversations with um, the agency program managers about what the big procurements are, looking at the procurement forecast so that you can be positioned for fourth quarter, if you're just getting started in Q4, you're way behind the eight ball.
0: Right. Brian, have any other thoughts on
2: that?
1: Yeah, I think I think one thing we're seeing right now is kind of a funneling effect of uh, so sort of a more intense pick in RFQs, um, uh, particularly on Oasis uh, small business pool one and on the CISP three a uh, uh, small business vehicle. And I think it's a combination of factors. One, things kind of slowed down a little bit while everybody was totally locked down. Yeah. And so now things have kind of moved to the right, but they, things that need to get out the door are getting out the door now. Um, and then the other piece is just, you know, some of the problems that we're seeing on these other vehicles, creating kind of a, a, a go-to place for for particularly those two contracts.
0: Right. So, and that, you sort of bring up a good topic. I want to get both your thoughts or observations, what you've seen with regard to COVID-19, the government's response, how is that impacting sort of obligations this year? You mentioned it a little bit, Brian, but just what are you guys seeing in terms of the impact and and what what you expect to see through the remainder of the fiscal year and even into the next fiscal year? If
2: I can start with that one. Um, Sure. There are a couple of wrinkles that I think people have to be aware of, and you just hit on one of them some of the funding in the cares act and base funding and whatnot is uh the appropriations were not one year money they were available for more than one year so as a consequence we should not anticipate all of the obligations occurring for response to covid by september 30th some of this is done definitely going to spill into fiscal 21 the second wrinkle i think that's important to bear in mind is um the degree to which it's a challenge for agencies um, to uh, right now the tracking of their of the budgets. If you look at the, the the IG consolidated report, they're not consistent across agencies in terms of keeping track of the COVID money separate from tagging it t- so that it's clearly identifiable. Um, we've got uh, we've built a little sort of custom market to keep track of the obligations, but that's the end of the story, so to speak, not the beginning of the story. Um, the other thing I think is that some of the money's mandatory, uh, not discretionary, and that makes it again, harder to anticipate when the obligations will occur. Um, what, what do you
0: mean, Cameron, what do you mean by mandatory versus uh, discretionary?
2: Um, so uh, think about Medicare, Medicaid, uh, okay. reimbursement, of, mm-hmm. uh, Healthcare providers. So, separate from the COVID money, we had anticipated uh, federal total obligations for the year um, getting to about 620 billion. But the question is, how much more does COVID spending add to that? Is it 20 billion? Somewhere between the 10 and 15 and 20 billion, probably. But it's going to be hard to pin that down.
0: Yeah. Brian, have you, what are you seeing with regard to government operations and obligations and procurement in the context of COVID-19?
1: Well, one thing that's kind of surprised me is, is kind of how quickly um, agencies have adjusted to the reality of social distancing and working from home. And we, we've actually seen, a um, you know, we were expecting more kind of delays in contract awards and transitions from one contract to, to the next because of it. But, but we're actually seeing you know, agencies have kind of figured it out. They'll get the new employees uh, to come in, get their CAC cards, get fingerprinted, and then go home and have their laptop shipped to them. And and so even on the DOD side, where I would have expected maybe less of that, I think there's been a concerted effort from the top down, and we've seen it at the contract level, where the, where those transitions have been able to occur.
0: Right. It'd be interesting, to to, to get you know, experiences both on from a government side and the contractor side about how it's worked when they've had to engage with each other. Right. I know, I mean, you know, organizationally, you know, talking within your team and you're working remotely, I think people really figured that out. I, I just wonder if there's lessons learned about when, you know, the, you know, the public, the private sector and the government folks have to communicate And how are they, is it all email? Is it, you know, virtual? How are you making sure the messaging comes across um, in, you know, in effective ways for both sides? That'd be interesting to see. Have you you guys heard any stories or anecdotal aspects of that type type of thing?
2: We've had some questions from clients about how best to engage with uh, program managers. You know, there's no active procurement. So the normal conversations that occur And uh, this is particularly, I think, challenging for CETA work um, on government site that, you know, in that context, I I served in that role when I was at Patel. And you could walk down the hall and see the program manager and say, hey, here's what we see. What do you think? Those conversations are a lot harder to have with social distancing. And they have, they they put a premium on sort of uh, persistent outreach. But right. you don't want to be a pest, you know, how, getting the right balance. Yeah. So right. I I would be interested to hear from uh, contractors uh, such as my, my old company, Booz Allen, S A I C, C A C I, that do that kind of work, what their experience is. That would be really
0: interesting. Right. Okay. Well, you know what? We're up. We only got a couple minutes left. I want to give you each, you know, a minute or so to, you know, just quick takeaways, anything you want to make sure that you that we haven't covered or something that you'd like to share with the audience. And I guess I will start with Cameron. Okay. Two
2: quick takeaways. There's a, I think a myth out there that uh, because of the government's urgency in getting money on contract in Q4, that somehow um, full and open competition goes by the wayside and it's, it's a a lot of sole source uh, awards and our data indicates that that is a myth uh, about, 92.5 92.5 billion uh, out of 182 billion in Q4 last year was full and open. So very very uh, significant portion of the total was full and open. Uh, and uh, the other myth, I think, that, uh, is that small business doesn't necessarily get a, a fair seat at the table. And in fact, uh, small business set aside uh, out of uh, 34.6 billion, Uh, For small business, uh, about $19.1 billion uh, went through that uh, set-aside mechanism. So uh, those two things, I think, are important to keep in mind.
0: Brian?
1: I I think the main thing for me is is, uh, a myth that I sometimes hear is people saying, oh, because of COVID, we're not seeing things moving and things are slowing down. We are not seeing a slowdown. We are seeing an, a, a rapid, you know, pace of RFQs across the vehicles that uh, we support with our clients. So I would say if if you feel like there's been a slowdown, then you're missing the <laughs> the action, and you need to figure out where is the work going because you're not seeing it because it is moving.
0: Well, yeah, and i would say you guys, you guys don't miss a thing. Okay, so I <laughs> all right. I wanna I wanna thank you guys for being on the show. I wanna thank my guest today. Uh, Cameron Luthie is a senior analyst at Bloomberg Government. Brian Friel, co-founder of BD Squared. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.
1: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.